Welcome to the Code 3 Counseling Podcast. Code 3 Counseling exists to provide mental health and personal support for first responders and their families. Each episode, we will share with you information, strategies, and resources that can help you thrive in the first responder life. The Code 3 Counseling Podcast is hosted by our co-founders, Sean Cavan and Alicia Swade. The cool thing is we are a first responder family. Sean is a retired police officer, and Alicia, Sean's daughter, is a mental health professional also married to a cop. We hope this podcast feels like you are sitting with us talking about how to enjoy living the first responder life. Now, while our goal is to provide you with helpful and accurate information, remember it is just information. This podcast is not meant to be a replacement for mental health or medical treatment. Always consult with a professional if you have concerns about your health and wellness. All right, now let's get into this week's podcast. Hey, everyone. We are so excited for you all to join us on today's episode of the Code 3 Counseling Podcast. Today, my dad and I had the pleasure of chatting with Dr. Ellen Kirschman. I was actually connected with her through Christy Warren, who was also on the podcast before. Dr. Kirschman is an award-winning public safety psychologist and author of I Love a Cop, What Police Families Need to Know, I Love a Firefighter, What the Family Needs to Know, and co-author of Counseling Cops, What Clinicians Need to Know. Dr. Kirschman has also written three mysteries, Burying Ben, The Right-Wrong Thing, and The Fifth Reflection, all told from the perspective of police psychologist Dr. Dot Meyerhoff. She blogs with Psychology Today and maintains a website where you can sign up for her occasional newsletter. Check out the link in our show notes to sign up. So without further ado, here is our chat with Dr. Ellen Kirschman. All right. So thank you so much today for joining us, Ellen. I really appreciate your time and just sharing your expertise with us and our listeners. Um, so why don't we start with just tell us a little bit about yourself and like how you kind of got into working with first responders. Oh. Well, that's a really that's a really long story, and you don't have enough time here <laughs> to listen to the whole the whole thing. Um, I was uh, briefly working at um, in a psychiatric clinic in a hospital when I was a social worker, and I started talking to spouses of police officers. And at that time, it was mostly female spouses, male officers. And uh, they would tell me what was going on at home. And I, it was so clear to me how the work was affecting the relationship. But there was no help. Nobody talked about it. And whenever I'd say, well, bring your husband in and let's talk together. And not only would the husband never show up, because back in those days, a cop would never go anywhere near a mental health clinic. And then not only that, the spouses would disappear, because obviously, um, that their husband said, uh, don't talk about me and don't tell anybody about what's going on. So being curious uh, and also working in a bureaucracy myself, I could see that sometimes the roles we get ourselves in really squash who we are as human beings. So I thought, you know, I also was very naive at the time. I was sort of early in my career. And I thought, you know, if you can explain something, you can probably cure it. Couldn't have been wronger about that. <laughs> but I put together a class at the local community college, and we called it I Love a Cop. And the first day the college catalog came out, the class was filled, and we had 45 women on the waiting list. 
So that told oh me that I had struck a need that propelled me back to get my doctorate in psychology and to do my dissertation on um, on police stress, basically. It was a sort of a combination of Sigmund Freud and Mickey Spillane, if you know who he is, mystery, <laughs> mystery writer, because I, I did an intensive case study of three people who started as healthy human beings as police officers and wound up with enormous mental health problems, alcoholism, et cetera. And I basically asked the question, what happened to you? And then because at that time, nobody was really looking at these issues, particularly how the work affects families, I started getting work right away. And that's, and 20 years later, I wrote the book, I Love a Cop, What Police mm -hmm. Need to Know. So. That's a short version of a very long story. Wow. Oh, my goodness. And I love how, like, serendipitous it was. Like, here you were just in a place and people were talking to you. And then all of a sudden you notice the need and start really looking into that. I know I have a couple of your books. I've, I haven't finished I Love a Cop. I do. But the one that I went through really quick was Counseling Cops. Mm -hmm. Um, and I went through that in like two days. I, I really read that one fast. The like growing old in a young person's profession and like that part was like, oh my gosh, that's so true because I see it a lot in my personal life, not just with like my spouse, but also with the people that he works with. Some of the people just, they have to like, they do feel older and seem older than they are. Like realizing, oh my gosh, you're only 24 mm -hmm. when I'm talking to somebody and thinking that they're closer to my age, mm -hmm. which is not 24. Mm -hmm. um, and sitting and chewing with that has mm -hmm. been like, it, it just feels like you get it. And you've done a lot of the work and research and understanding around what these people go through and what it does to them. Mm -hmm. And then one of the things that comes to my mind is like, all right, well, you get what happens for the responders. How do they know what to do around getting help? Well, often they don't know what to do and they receive very little guidance mm -hmm. on this. Um, and then I think there's a number of answers to your question, a number of facets. Um, you know, for one thing, we give people nowadays a little bit of stress training in the academy. Um, and to me, while I certainly haven't been to every academy in the United States, oftentimes that's checking something off a list. It, mm -hmm. it, it is not really two things. It's not really done deeply or seriously enough. There's not enough time devoted to it, but even more important than that, you can't, you, to talk about stress with people who have no experience on the job and mm -hmm. like um, trying to give premarital counseling to people who are deeply in love with each other, they don't want to hear it. <laughs> you know, nothing's going to happen to them. Uh, those people that have problems, they did something wrong, not me. It won't happen to me. So there's no Velcro. You know, there's no way that the young cops will connect with 
what they might hear or what people are saying could happen to them or how they should be managing themselves and their careers. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of better to maybe introduce the idea, but then what you need is follow up at maybe between three and five years when they're starting to feel the effects of what Mm -hmm. the job does to you day in and day out. Because, you know, cops will see more tragedy, more human cruelty in the first couple of years of their um, careers than most of the rest of us will see in an entire lifetime. And that starts Mm -hmm. to wear on you. And if you don't know how to manage it or if there isn't help available in the form of peer support, chaplains programs, confidential, free, culturally competent clinical um, uh, clinicians available, if, if those things are not there, and if that's not set as, I mean, I think one of the things you can do in the beginning is to say to people, look, we will offer you these services, but it's your responsibility to take care of yourself. It's your responsibility to monitor your own moods, your own um, functioning, your own wellness, and also to take feedback from your families. And we can give you the services, mm-hmm. but we can't make you use them, of course. Yeah. And then, then there's the whole problem of stigma and of super being super macho, whether you're a man or a woman. Um, the idea that if I need help, that must mean there's something wrong with me and I'm weak and I better hide being weak. And I know I'm the only one, no one else feels like this. And then they start judging their own insides by everybody else's outsides. But you know, almost everybody else is pretending too. So, mm-hmm. um, and, and to understand how um, things accumulate uh, over the years, not just the big stuff, the big traumas, but the, the really small, uh, um, my colleague Andy O'Hara, retired CHP guy and was a, one of the early the people who were volunteering at the first responder support network retreats. I mean, he calls them soul woundings. And I love that expression. Mm. It's just those little bumblebee stings, whether it happens on the street or happens from inside the organization, because as we all know, organizational stress is huge for police officers. Yes. It's, and it, and it makes yeah. everything else worse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, I, when you were talking about um, in the in the academy, you know, the the stress education or whatever we got, you know, most of the time it was our normal academy instructors who are just police officers, right. you know. And when I went through the academy in you know nineteen ninety something, you know, it was at that time where you just you dealt with things, you know, on your own. You going to counseling was never an option. Sure. And now. You know, as my career progressed, um, I've said it before, you know, it's it was later in my career when we started seeing peer support teams and mm-hmm. and um, counts, uh, chaplains and things like that showing up at the department. So they started, you know, getting involved more in that, but it was still had that that stigma of, yeah, I'm not going to talk to them. I'm not going to, you know, it's not me. I'm fine. Mm-hmm. But um, I think that even more so now, 
your your administrations have to not only present the opportunity for you to get that help, but to encourage it, you know, to push it, to say, you know, we, we qualify with our handguns, you know, mm -hmm. four or five times a year or whatever. And you have a, a quarterly training that you have domestic violence updates and things like that. Why can't you have mental health updates? You got to mm -hmm. have, even if it's, you know, a group setting where guys are going to joke and use all their dark humor, but it's still going to plant that seed that, hey, as soon as this is done, I'm going to talk to that person, well, you know, and, and start getting something going. There are a number of agencies that have started mandatory yearly mental health checkups. They call it, they have different names for them, you know, right. and the, mm -hmm. it's what you're saying. It's on the same uh, thought as you go to the dentist once or twice a year to get your teeth checked up. These are volu mm -hmm. they're not voluntary mm -hmm. because if they were voluntary, few people would go, but they're yeah. mandatory. They're totally confidential. And you come in and you, they're handled in various ways, depending upon the department and the clinician. But it's, you know, sort of, all right, so, you know, how's the year been? What's going on with you? And if you want to sit there and say nothing, you can do that. Uh, but it serves mm -hmm. two purposes. It introduces an officer to their local culturally competent clinician. So if next year mm -hmm. they're having a bad year or things are falling apart at home, they at least know somebody to talk to. And uh, mm -hmm. apparently, while we expected a lot of resistance to doing this, um, it's not been as uh, as strong as people thought. And uh, these yearly check-ins seem to be helpful. And a lot of clinicians are reporting that they then get other calls from the same officers that they had the, the, did the checkup with, um, who are now taking responsibility for saying, look, I'm not sleeping. Can I come in and talk? Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And, and building that, that framework for um, understanding your mental health and your well-being so that when the trauma does come, that you're able to recognize it and approach it with a, a system you already have in place. Well, and being able to understand, like, I know <laughs> a lot of people have preconceived notions of what counseling and counseling support can look like. Like, Dad, when you were in the department and working and you thought about like maybe going and seeing a counselor or a therapist what picture came to your mind oh yeah that either either the real old guy with the glasses on the end of his nose <laughs> who has no idea what i'm going through or the the ponytail hippie person from berkeley that you know just can't stand law enforcement and i'm not going to go in there and tell him all my deepest darkest secrets mm -hmm. you know so it's it's definitely difficult to to jump into that pool. Yeah. Well, and being able to like talk with somebody who helps you see, oh, a conversation with a counselor is gonna be a, like a normal conversation. It's not gonna be the old guy with the glasses sitting behind the chase lounge asking you about like your childhood right. all the time. And it's not gonna be this per like you get the idea of who that person is, which helps to bridge that gap. And I love that some departments are doing that, but I also know that like in our area, there aren't any departments that are doing mm -hmm. that. Um, and it's just because the departments are small mm -hmm. and they're all understaffed, like not even at minimum staffing most of them. So there's not enough time to be able to do that. There's not enough space. There's not enough people to follow up and make sure that happens. 
But I think something that could be helpful for responders to understand is like, all right, well, if you don't have that counselor coming in and doing an annual checkup with you, what does counseling even look like? I mean, some people hear about EMDR and it's the brain voodoo magic. And some people hear about retreats. Some people hear about like all these other things. But I, I think something that might be helpful for you to share is like, well, what, what does counseling look like? And what are the different ways that counseling can help a responder? Well, I have a couple of responses to that. One of the reasons we wrote the book, Counseling Cops, is to try to help clinicians understand what works well with cops. So uh, sitting there and saying nothing, being non-directive in the old psychoanalytic model doesn't work. You have to mm-hmm. weigh, the, we say there's those three stools, to, uh, three legs of a stool. Uh, you have to be transparent. You have to answer questions when an officer asks you. You can't give the old, well, why do you want to know that? Or how will you use that information? <laughs> you got to really answer because information is what keeps cops safe. Um, mm-hmm. To build trust, you've got to be a real person with them. So you have to be, you have to understand the culture. Be, that's what we mean by being mm-hmm. uh, competent. And you have to have some experience. So we really think it, w- it helps both the clinician and the their potential clients to actually insert yourself in the culture, which is what I did. And I, I, that's just me. I am a, like half anthropologist. And I can't write about something if I haven't actually had a hands-on experience with it. So mm-hmm. to tell clinicians, go on ride-alongs, go to the Citizens Academy, volunteer your time. Um, get, let people get to know you as a person and to know that you're actually mm-hmm. interested. And also as um, to examine your own attitudes, because as we say in the Counseling Cops book, many uh, clinicians, we, get, we took some heat from this because I have some clinicians who are, don't fall into the liberal category, but many of us, particularly in California, do. And so you mm-hmm. got, you've got to... Um, you've you got to examine your own attitudes and your own experiences with um, police officers. And yeah. in particular, um, all of, it's gotten very um, delicate and very difficult over the last couple of years with all of the anti-police yes. attitudes and some of the egregious behavior that police have committed. So, you know, you mm-hmm. one just, just ignore those kinds of things. Um to talk about what counsel, I mean, I think most departments really fail to do a couple of things. Um, mm-hmm. They fail to aggressively market themselves to clinicians in their communities because they could be a source of referrals. So if you say this oh, yeah. San Francisco model, and I think it works very well, um, you say to some clinicians, look, we, we will make you a preferred provider We'll even work with the insurance company maybe and get you a better fee than you would ordinarily get. But what you have to do is exchanges. You have to come in. You have to do X number of ride-alongs. You got to sit in the communications mm-hmm. center. You got to teach a couple of classes and maybe sleep hygiene, stress management. People have to get to know you. Yeah. And in exchange for that, you'll get referrals from us. 
And that way, if you have a clinician who comes in who is one of these, um, you know, weirdos and shows up in their pajamas or they, uh, they're they preaching one thing or another, and you know, then everybody knows, don't go to that person. Yeah. You know, just take uh-huh. them off the list. And, yep. and, then, and then that's a, I think that's a really profitable exchange. The other thing that doesn't happen is that departments, and this you pointed out, they don't have the time. They don't follow up when with and ask people if they know that someone has utilized the clinician. There's no evaluation. Nobody gets back mm-hmm. either to, cl- to the, not only the clinician, but the, sometimes the screening psychologist. You know, you, you recommended this mm-hmm. cop to us, and this guy is just not going to work out. He's Looney Tunes. So, you know, that, so that gives the clinician an opportunity to redo their work and take a look at it again. Mm-hmm. So there, there are, as you point out, there are many options, and particularly now, the, one of the maybe one of the best things to come out of COVID is this telemental health, which allows yeah. allows people to have therapy um, over the internet, and uh, which can, means you can, if you live in California, you can see somebody in Connecticut if you want. I think that maybe builds a bigger firewall for cops because they're always worried about um, confidentiality and will, will this, you know, therapist, they'll know and I'll lose my job and so forth. Mm-hmm. So there, the options are, you know, if you're in trouble, I think you start at home talking to your family. If the trouble starts in your family, then you want to talk to a friend. You want to talk to, uh, in your department, if you have peer support, you want to Talk to a peer supporter or your chaplain if uh, if you're inclined um, in that way, and then you know you have options of seeing um, a clinician. Uh, you can we have retreats all over the place. Um, the one that you and I are most familiar with is the First Responder Support Network here that started here in California, which is a six day very intensive retreat and it's uh, for people who have the symptoms of PTSD. They don't necessarily have to have a diagnosis of it. Um, Sometimes it's for people who have been in therapy and therapy is stalled. And so we can sort of get things going again. Um, But it's very intense and, and you don't always need to see if you're a police officer, sometimes your problems are just human problems and you don't always have to see somebody who understands police work. Um, you know, maybe your child is show, showing, uh, showing signs of some problems or stress or school problems. You might want to see someone who specializes in children with school problems and that person doesn't necessarily would be really nice if they knew something about police work in case mom or dad is coming home and acting like a cop at home. And that's why the kid is under stress. Mm-hmm. So, um, so they're all of those. Did I ever stress you out? <laughs> Did I come <laughs> home like that? <laughs> I was terrible at that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, my command presence followed me everywhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, at, you know it. At the you time, got through it. <laughs> did you know that at the I'm time? Sorry? No, no. Yeah, I thought I was being a, a firm parent. Yeah. You know, just mm-hmm. trying to raise my kids right. Yeah. 
That's one of the things that we say to the cops all the time is if you think your job doesn't follow you home, you're fooling yourself. Mm. And your family, Mm -hmm. your family's reading you as hard as you read anybody else. And they're looking for that face when you walk in the door. What's what face is dad or mom got on today? And are they mad at me or did they have a bad day at work? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and one of the things with like it, it following you home, I, I often tell people like the fact that it does just shows that you're human and you care, right. like you care that the, that people get hurt, that people have to deal with stuff and you can't do anything about it. Like that is your compassionate side that's being affected. And that's, it's not necessarily a bad thing that you have compassion and that it's being affected by the work that you do. It's figuring out, okay, how do I still be a compassionate person, but like not let it negatively create problems in other areas of my life. Like on this call with this DV couple, domestic violence couple who are always getting called and we're always in this home and they will not make a change. And I get so frustrated and today it was like a bad one. And now I'm going home and I'm still mad because they're not making a change. And I care about humans living a good life. So the fact that they're not making a change and they're suffering is hard for me to handle. And like, okay, that happened at work, but then you go home and you don't take it out on your family. You can talk about it with your family, process it with a friend or somebody at work, but not letting it negatively um, create, or not letting it create more problems in relationships outside of work. Well, exactly. And I mean, that's actually the right thing. The point is, I think where cops often miss out is they don't realize that they're feeling that bad. They're just in a mood of some sort. Mm -hmm. They come home and probably, I'm not sure so much it's compassion that they might be feeling as helpless. I can't make this thing happen. These people keep calling all the time and I'm supposed to be able to make things happen. I'm a cop and I cannot affect the situation in any in any competent sort of a way and I feel helpless. No, no, no cop would ever have that conscious thought. But mm-hmm. My sense is that's probably what's going on. But at least if you know you're in a bad mood, <laughs> um, we encourage people to, to, to talk about it or do something, you know, be civil. Yeah. Uh, tell your family, I'm in a terrible mood. I had an awful day at work today. I need to go out and run about three miles and work off this adrenaline with exercise mm-hmm. is a very effective way of doing it. And then, um, and here's what I need from you. What I need from you right now is just leave me alone. Now, <laughs> yes. you know, I also understand that there, there may be a spouse standing there with a, a crying uh, baby with a wet diaper and that she's been waiting and waiting for you to come in the door so she can hand <laughs> off this kid and, and take a shower or something, you know. So, I mean, that may not be a very practical thing to do, but, but couples would be wise to try to work these things out and understand mm-hmm. how this job is going to affect you. You know, the one, the one emotion that is permitted in law enforcement 
in first responders, just anger. Perfectly all right to be angry at everyone and everything all the time. That's okay. Um, to be and those softer emotions, compassion, helplessness, feeling um, sad, um, grief stricken. Those are much, much harder, so much easier to turn all that stuff into anger. Um, mm -hmm. And that, of course, we know anger then eats up your body physically and cause, can cause all sorts of problems. So yeah. then we, we say to cops, look, you don't ha it's not a black and white issue. You don't have to tell everything or nothing. There's some things your spouse may not want to hear. Very often spouses will say, don't tell me anything about children. So fine. Yep, don't tell that them. was my wife. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was your wife. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So you don't have to say that. You could just say something like, I saw something today. I hope I never see again. It was pretty awful. And here's here's what I need. You know, it's the arsenic hour. Everybody has needs at that point when they're coming home and nobody yeah. has anything to give. So you do the best you can, but to, but you don't have to tell everything. You can just say, I've had a really crappy day. What I need is a glass of uh, wine or a foot rub or a run around the block, something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, everyone. Don't worry. The chat with Dr. Kirschman is not over yet. We will be releasing the second half of this interview for you next week. We talked with her for almost an hour, so we had a lot of good information to share. If you are interested in learning more about Dr. Kirschman or the West Coast Post-Trauma Retreat, check out the links in our show notes. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. And also, if you are interested in keeping up with the resources, subscribe to our monthly wellness newsletter in the show notes and get a couple of free resources for yourself. And always remember, it may be your battle, but you don't have to fight it alone.